fill our hearts and our lives. Fill the mouths of those who speak your word now, those who are reading and jit as he preaches to us. Open our ears by your spirit that we may hear your word. Open our hearts that we may respond to you with fullness of life. Come, Holy Spirit. just give thanks that we have the freedom to come here together to hear your word. God of all glory, touch our lips with the fire of your spirit, that we with all creation may rejoice to sing your praise through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 Please sit as we have our two readings. We want more of you, God, so let's hear what God says to us through the readings tonight. <laughs> to 28 Hebrews chapter 9 and it's on page 1207 in the church bible 1207 Can you hear me down at the back Is it yeah good For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, 
but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Gospels from Mark 1, verses 14 to 20. After Jesus was put in prison, sorry, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me. Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good evening. Uh, it's great to be here. For those of you who may be new, my name's Jit. I'm the new associate vicar here. And so just getting to know a number of you, and it's been such a warm welcome. And it's a great privilege, actually, this Sunday to be preaching my first set of sermons. And so I really need to pray. Let's pray together. <laughs> Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power to change our lives. We thank you for those who gave their lives so that we might have it. And we pray now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we might hear from you, we might see Jesus, and that our lives might be transformed to reflect your glory. In your name we ask this. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to be digging especially into that Mark passage we've just had read out, so please do keep your Bibles open in front of you if you've closed them. That's page 1002. That was Mark chapter 1. Please do open up the before you. It's always reassuring for the preacher to see you reading something. It means that you are either paying attention or you're reading something on your phone hidden in your Bible. We're going to be digging into this passage, but also tonight I want to share a bit of personal testimony as a way of kind of earthing some of these things, and also just to introduce myself to you, and so I hope that's okay. The NIV subtitle says that this passage should be titled, The Calling of the First Disciples, and it's actually quite aptly named, because these are the very first disciples in the Gospel of Mark who are called by Jesus. And what we're going to be thinking about tonight is this whole theme of calling and Jesus calling to people, to men and women just like you and me, that he still does today. The Christian author Oswald Guinness once said this, as modern people, we have too much to live with and too little to live for. And in this passage tonight, we're going to be looking at what Jesus calls us to live for with what we've been given to live with, however great or small that might be. And I've just got three simple things I want to bring out of this passage, all about the call of Jesus. Firstly, 
that Jesus' call is for every single person to follow him. Our passage begins with Jesus' very first words in the Gospel of Mark. The time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. Jesus comes to the scene and says, that time that you've all been waiting for, the time that you've been waiting centuries for, has finally come. And it's come because I've come. The kingdom of God has come because I am the king. And here I am. And because of that, because of that, you have a response to make. You need to turn around, you need to repent, and you need to believe this good news, the gospel. Jesus comes saying that there is good news of restoration, of life with him. And in our Hebrews reading, we heard a bit about what that looks like, the mechanics of it, that he came to die for us, to offer a sacrifice for sin, all the stuff that we've ever done that's been wrong, both in our thoughts and in the words we've said, those secret things that no one else knows about, all those things that create a barrier between us and the living God. Jesus came to do away with. The Hebrews reading spoke about the fact that he did it once and for all at the cross. And because he did it once and for all, this really is good news, and that his kingdom can now come, starting in our hearts as we choose to put our trust in him, coming out of our lives, flowing to other lives, transforming families and societies and even nations. This really is the good news. And Jesus comes saying, it's here. It's here. It's happening. It's happened. You need to believe it. But what's really interesting is where he chooses to start saying this stuff. He chooses to start saying it in a place called Galilee, verse 14. Now, I don't know if you know much about the geography of the region, but Galilee, at that point, was a very despised part of the Middle East, especially by the Jewish people. It was a melting pot of Jews and half-Jews and Gentiles, all mixed together, and uh, no one really liked it because it, it didn't really belong to anyone. In fact, the word Galilee means ring because it was encircled by Gentile nations, so Jews would have to cross through Gentile territory to even get to it. It definitely wasn't the wisest starting point for many looking at Jesus' ministry. It wasn't the, uh, the big lights of Jerusalem or one of the prophetic places that have been mentioned in the patriarchal narrative in the Old Testament. But this is where Jesus chooses to start his ministry. And a good question to ask is why? Why does he choose here? It would kind of be the equivalent of the rock band U2 starting their world tour to much acclaim, not in New York or in London, but in Bognor Regis, for example. Why would you do that? Not that I've got anything against Bognor Regis, if anyone's here from that particularly lovely place. But why does Jesus choose to do this? Well, I think, and prophetically, we know from Isaiah 9, it was predicted that he does this to make a very deliberate point, that he came for every single person to hear this good news, and for every single person to repent and believe, for every single person to come into that living relationship with God, that no one's excluded, even the least, even the lowest, even the despised. And he starts in that place to make it very clear. Later on, he's obviously going to be interacting with the rich and the politically powerful, especially at the end of his life. But here he starts, at the very dregs of society, saying, no, I've come for everyone. I've come for everyone. My call 
is for all. And my own personal experience is of this, actually. That Jesus' call came to me, even though it really shouldn't have, even though there are much better people, perhaps, for it to come to. I uh, grew up in a Hindu context, hundreds of generations of idol worshippers before me and my family in the background. As a teenager, a very clear-cut atheist with strong arguments against the Christian faith. Also, I believed it. At university, coming up uh, to study at Oxford and doing really well academically, elected a, a scholar of the college in my first year, and it seems that I had everything. I had everything, and very unlikely to be reached by Christ. But actually, Christ came and still called, even me, even me, through the witness of friends, through the authenticity of the way that they lived. Jesus called. This is what he does. He calls to people, even the most unlikely, to come and follow him. And it's been my joy many years now to receive that call and to follow Jesus. And many people here will have a similar testimony of how Jesus called them. He calls everyone, everyone. Every single person in this room is called to follow him. And if it is that you're in this room and you've never really made that decision to follow Jesus, you might have been coming to church for a while, maybe just been sitting in the back kind of hoping that no one will notice you, or maybe you've just been going with the flow, but never made that commitment to say, Jesus, I'm following you. You're mine, I'm yours. Can I commend to you that this is the best decision you could ever make? Your life will be disrupted. We'll see in a moment that these disciples' lives were definitely disrupted. But they'll be turned around to good. It'll be the best decision you could ever make. Jesus' call is for everybody. The second point I wanted to make out of this passage is that Jesus' call is irresistible. It's irresistible. Because the passage continues to zoom in on two particular cases, two sets of brothers who are called specifically by Jesus to follow him. Two sets of brothers who are fishermen, actually. The first are Simon and Andrew. We read in verse 16, they've been casting a net into the lake and trying to catch some fish. And Jesus says to them, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. It says at once they left their nets and followed him. And then a little bit later, he passes by James and John, sons of Zebedee, and they're in a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And he says the same to them, come and follow me. And they leave everything and come and hear that request and follow him. And a really good question again is, why? This is so audacious of Jesus to ask this of them. They're in the middle of their labor. They're in the middle of a hard working day. And this person called Jesus comes we don't think, according to Mark, he's actually had interaction with them before he comes and just says, Oi, stop what you're doing and follow me. I want you to imagine trying this yourselves, walking by a building site and shouting out to the, ba- to the builder, Come, follow me, and I'll make you builders of God's kingdom. I wonder what the response would be. Probably wouldn't be the same as here, and probably would be actually fairly opposite. So what is it? What's going on here? Why is Jesus' call here so irresistible that they are compelled to follow him? I want to suggest that there's a really simple answer. The answer is this, that this isn't the call of any mere human like one of us. That this is the call of someone much greater. Someone who is, of course, fully human, 
but also someone who is the creator, calling to the created to come into the fullness of what they were created for. You see, when they heard this call from Jesus' lips to follow him, they recognised something tangibly different, that this was something of eternity that stirred in their souls, that this was of so deep importance they had to leave everything behind, that this was what they were made for, that this was the purpose of their lives, and nothing could stop them from following it. In physics, there's a um, theory called resonance. And I promise, even though I'm an exorcist, I won't be using too many science illustrations. And the theory of resonance says that every object has a natural frequency that it will vibrate at if it's hit. So that lectern has a natural frequency that you just heard. And if you apply a sound wave to the lectern at that particular frequency, that le- this lectern would start to shake violenter and violenter and violenter because you hit the resonant frequency. And eventually, it actually might start to splinter and come apart. It's how you see opera uh, singers break glasses with their voice through finding that frequency that hits the sweet spot that causes it to shake apart. And what's going on here is that Jesus' call hits that deep, part inside the disciples' hearts, that resonant frequency, if you want to call it that, that this is what they are made for, this is what they were naturally born for, and supernaturally were going to be born again for. This was the purpose of their lives, to follow Jesus, to become fishers of men. And they couldn't escape it. It was impossible. Again, my experience of this is that when you hear the call of Jesus... When you really hear it, it's impossible to escape. It will hunt you down. You won't be able to escape it. Carrying on with a bit of my testimony, after I became a Christian at university, I came to the end of my four-year degree and had a decision to make, actually. Uh, I'd been offered, on a plate, a four-year research degree position studying for a PhD, fully funded, at the Department of Physics at Oxford, on the plate, right in front of me, saying, and I was asked, would you like it? But at the same time, I had the sense of God saying to me, actually, I want you to do something different. I want you to go and work for a church for a year, being an intern, being a bit of a lackey, doing lots of odd jobs and lots of slave labour. We don't make Sam do that, by the way. And I remember there, had to, there was a decision that I had to make Life was going to go in one of two ways. And one promised lots of glory, <laughs> sorted career, very clear-cut, and one that I thought originally I was going to be going down. The other was a bit more uncertain. Where would this lead? What would it mean? In the end, I remember it wasn't much of a decision because Jesus' call is irresistible. When you've heard it, when you know he's calling you to something, you can't escape it. And so I ended up working for that church for a year, and it's during that year, actually, a further call came to ordination, which, again, I couldn't escape. And many, many years later, here I am. And I'm not saying that that is the same for everyone here, or anyone here, perhaps. But for each one of you, Jesus has made you for a reason. 
He has a call for your life. The book of Ephesians, Paul says that we are God's workmanship, made in Christ Jesus, to do the things he prepared for us to do in advance. He's got things for you to be doing with your life. And the question is, what are they? What are they? What has Jesus called to you? See, we could have our ideas, our thoughts, our plans, or our family's ideas, our family's thoughts, or culture's ideas, and their thoughts. But what is Christ saying to you about your life? What's he said in the past? What's he saying right now in the current season of your life? What's his calling to you? If you hear it, you won't be able to escape it. There's a bit of a danger warning here. But it is the most satisfying thing in the world because it was what you were made for. So what is it? Well, we'll be picking that up a bit later. There's a second point. Jesus' call is irresistible. Thirdly, and lastly, Jesus' call is costly. You see, when Jesus calls these two sets of brothers, it actually costs them a lot. For Simon and Andrew, it says that they at once left their nets and followed him. They left their nets behind. That was a material cost. Those nets would have been very expensive. They would have have saved up for them. It was their livelihood. And yet this call of Jesus meant that they were happy to leave those things on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, to leave them behind. A material cost. For James and John, it was an emotional cost. You see that they were on a fishing boat with their father and they have to leave him behind to follow Jesus. Breaking apart probably a family business. Probably rending relationships. There's an emotional cost here to following Christ. And yet again, they make that decision that call of Jesus is worth the cost and they leave their father behind in the boat and follow Jesus this is one of the hallmarks of the call of Jesus it's not a very popular one but it's a very biblical one that Jesus' call is costly in fact Jesus himself suggests it's not just going to cost you a few things it's going to cost you your life Matthew 16 he says this If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Christian Martyr Bonhoeffer put it very simply when he said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come die. That actually he wants all of you. The cost is everything. The invitation is free, but the cost is everything. He doesn't want you to leave anything behind as you give your life to him, as you choose to follow him day by day. You see, there is a choice. We can either have our life on our terms, in our ways, or actually the life of Christ on his terms and in his ways. And he doesn't allow you. There isn't space in our lives for both to exist simultaneously. It's either going to be one or the other. You can try to have both together, but it's just not going to work. You can't have your cake and eat it in this particular situation. And often this cost of a call is letting go of the things that we treasure, the intent for our life that we have, 
so that Christ might fill your life with the things that he intends for it. I've often illustrated this by the idea of actually us clenching our fists full of stuff and then holding them out in front of us and then dropping them to the ground so that when we turn them back over, they're empty for Christ to fill with treasure, with gold. And again, this has been my experience of following Christ's call throughout the years. Yet there is a cost. That cost makes way for the most wonderful gain, actually. There's a cost for me following his call in terms of family, if I'm honest. Uh, Family actively opposing an emotional cost, like with uh, James and John in this passage. Active opposition and uh, all kinds of words that you'd never want your family to say to you. An emotional cost of following Christ's call. At the same time, that having known that cost personally, I've also known Christ's faithfulness in it. That what he gives more than outweighs what you lose when you follow him. The treasures and the riches of following him and his calling. Actually seeing him mend broken relationships and bring about resurrection, the gain actually outweighs the cost. You always get better with God. He's always better than anything else you can choose. And I wanted to bring that out of the passage because this is perhaps one of the most important parts of our discipleship. This is the theme we're looking at over these Sundays. Because we can say we're disciples, we can look like we're disciples, we can actually go to the right courses and read the right books, but what matters is that place inside of us given over to Christ that he might fully be our Lord. A surrender to the things he's calling us to. And I want to ask you, what might that look like for you? What things is it going to cost you? Is it going to cost you a comfortable living? The way that you think you should be living? Is it going to cost you something in terms of your time? That he becomes Lord of your scheduling? Is it simply going to cost you things that you love? making space for that first love relationship with him. What's the cost going to be? Well, let me end by saying that for John and for James, for Simon and for Andrew, this wasn't the only cost that they suffered in their lives. We know that they went on to be four of the founding 12 apostles. They went on to see amazing things happen through them as they were sent out by Jesus after Pentecost. They saw thousands being saved and healed and lives transformed. But three of these four actually paid the ultimate cost. They were martyred for their faith. Everyone but John here died for proclaiming Christ. Yeah, I wonder if you asked them in the penultimate day of their lives, was it worth it following the call of Jesus? What would their answer be? I guarantee that the answer would be, yes, of course it was. It always was. There's no regrets. And I want to commend to you that following Jesus, his call for your life, is costly. Being captured by it will, will hurt in one way or another, but it's worth it. You'll have no regrets. That last day of your life, you'll be able to say, yeah, of course it was. Of course it was worth it. I invite you to stand. And we're going to pray together. He's going to ask Sam to come up and uh, he's going to lead us in a bit of a chorus of a worship song just as we just 
Take this time now to ask the Lord to apply these things to our own lives and ask what's he saying to us personally. And this is a chance for you to be very honest with him. No one's going to ask you questions. But he is here. And he's wanting to engage with you, to call to you. There might be callings that come in this time. There might be redirection. There might be that call to a costly giving. Oh, we welcome you. We ask for your presence. Come, Spirit of God. We pray that you would apply your word to our hearts. Come, Lord Jesus. Lord, as we worship you, we ask for your presence, for your ministry amongst us as we respond to your word. Jeremiah 29, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. For I know the plans I have for you. There might be people here who are asking the Lord, what are your plans for me? The Lord says, I know the plans I have for you. For good and not for evil. Those plans that bring a, a future and a hope. It may be that you're in a difficult place. You can't quite see those plans at the moment. And if that's you, I'd encourage you just to say to the Lord, Lord, I want what you want. You might just want to open up your hands in front of you and just say that as a gesture. Lord, I want what you want. Your plans for me. And just sense also that uh, there is a cost to following Christ's course. Some of you know it very well. But some of you, Jesus is asking you for even more. And it's dangerous and it, it's risky. But he wants to do that. And he wants you to join with him in that cost. The one who gave his all for us at the cross, that great cost. And I want us all to do this. I want us to do that action with our hands where we surrender these things to God. So I want you to place your hands in front of you. This feels a bit weird, but don't worry. And just think of the things in your life that these clenched hands represent that you have a firm hold on that you have plans for and I just want you to open your hands and lay them at Christ's feet and say to him Lord these belong to you your kingdom come your will be done and now turn your hands over. Lord, would you fill my life with your purpose? Would I hear your call? Help me to run in it, to not look back, to find you, to search after you all my life, Lord. And God, takes these decisions seriously. They come with a health warning. These decisions of complete surrender. But if you're willing to make them, he honours his part as well and he will lead you. He will guide you. 
He will take you step by step. He will be faithful to you in the midst of all that happens. So Lord, we thank you. We thank you, O God, who calls us. And we seek you in this place. Come, Lord Jesus, and call us further. Call us on into your purposes that we might run after you as your disciples following you. Amen. The, um, the responsibilities and the burdens and give to us your joy so you're ready here also to hear our cares our anxieties our griefs and our longings for ourselves for each other and for this world and so we're going to bring you now Lord the cry of our hearts for this world as we pray. Father, we lift up to you now our heart desires, Lord, for our world, our church, our community, our families, our friends. Father, we pray for our world. We think especially of France, our near neighbour. We pray for its people, especially the people of Paris, Lord. We pray for your comfort for those who are injured. We pray for your healing for them. We pray, Father, for the families and friends of those who have died, Lord. Uh, Father, we just ask for your comfort as they grieve. Father, we pray against a spirit of bitterness, revenge. Father, we pray for forgiveness. We pray for love. We pray, Father, for communities, regardless of their faith, and even if they do not know it, to be united in their desire for peace and reconciliation in Christ in Christ alone. We pray you would open the eyes of those who cause violence, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would speak into their hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit to point them to Jesus and to bring peace. Father, we just cry out for a broken world. We cry out for those countries engaged in conflict. Father, we cry out for peace and justice. Father, we pray for the missionary organization today, Military Ministries International. Father, we pray for those members of the Orthodox Christian tradition who met last week in Sofia, Bulgaria. 
Father, we thank you that there was a spirit of unity, and we pray that they would be envisioned to point people in the militaries of the countries in which they serve to Jesus. Father, we pray for Paddy Hughes from Military Ministries International as he travels in Nepal currently, meeting with people who have been affected by the earthquake earlier this year in Gorkha and in other towns. Help him to bring encouragement and practical advice. We pray as Paddy travels on to India, to Delhi, and Lucknow to meet with people who work with Christians in the military of the second biggest nation on this planet. We pray, Lord, that it would be an encouragement to them and that it would help them to reach out to the military in their country. Father, we pray here for our own community. We pray especially for St. Jude's Primary School, where the staff, children and their families eh, are cared for and cherished by you. Father, we thank you that each child at the school has been given a Bible. We pray, Father, that they would read it or their families would read it. And in the pages of your word, they would encounter the living Jesus. Father, we pray for those of our own church who are ill, for Jeanette Haywood, for David Fry, for Pat Cadman, and in a moment of silence, for anyone else known to each one of us who needs your healing touch in mind, spirit, or body. We pray, Father, for your comfort for those grieving the death of loved ones. In particular, we pray for the friends and family of Albert Braithwaite and of Betty Dockerty. Father, we bring these requests before you, knowing that you have heard them because of what the Lord Jesus has done. In his name we ask. Amen. So we draw together the threads of our worship tonight with our final song. Defender of this heart, you love me from the start. You never change. Shall we stand and worship?
So may Christ, who calls disciples to follow him, who calls each one of us as his disciples tonight, who makes saints out of sinners, sanctify you by his Holy Spirit and raise and empower you to transform the world. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you and remain with you always, this day and forevermore, to the very end of the age. Amen. So go in peace to love and serve and take God's message to all those you meet this week. In the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you.